so we're we're not live here. It's uh... <laughs> no, no, no. God, no, no, no. It's all pre-recorded and edited within an inch of its life. Right. There's not going to be anyone typing in insults and all. No. That. You don't even have to be dressed. It's absolutely fine. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did a podcast with these guys from New York, and uh, it, it was it was like in real time, and these people were typing in questions, but but mostly it was like friends and relatives of theirs insulting the host. So. <laughs> Hello, my name is Jeff Lee, co-creator of Qbert and artist on Mad Planets, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May and this is a podcast project for the Fort's Paul Drury. Hello. Tony Temple and myself, a regular opportunity to speak at length with the key creatives and pioneers from the golden age of video arcade gaming. You'll probably recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine and Tony is the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic. Unfortunately, Tony isn't able to join us for the next few episodes, but he should be back during the summer months. For this episode, Paul and I speak with Mr. Jeff Lee, co-creator of Qbert, an artist on Khan Yabamoto's seminal Mad Planets. Jeff talks about the early days at Gottlieb Marstar and shares poignant memories of the aforementioned Yabamoto-san and the one and only Tim Skelly. Jeff also talks about his animation and art techniques, which were, and still are, rooted in traditional filmmaking and graphic art. As ever, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a few friends. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. A special thank you this episode to Vinny at Free64 and the boys at the Retro Asylum podcast. You can find the Retro Asylum wherever you get your podcasts. And go to free64.com for more about Vinny's ventures. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Jeff, uh, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Although, should I call you Artiste, which I believe was the pseudonym that you were you were known as? Please don't. Well, I be, I'm intrigued <laughs> why you were given. You appeared when Cubit was on the cover of Video Games magazine. Um, they... They gave you the pseudonym Artiste. We see what they did there. Um, did you not feel rather confused that you were were somehow being anonymized? It was not unexpected. Um, there was a culture of secrecy at uh, Gottlieb. But, you know, they felt, uh, well, I, th- I think what we thought at the time was they were afraid other companies would poach their talent. Something they did all the time uh, from the competition. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, our, our chief hardware designer had come from Midway. Um, at one point, John Newcomer, who had mm. done Joust, was poached from Williams. And, you know, we had other Midway people come. You know, so, so it was qu- that was quite common. Uh, you know, an explanation we heard years later was 
they didn't, or the pinball guys were not getting credited for games. Yeah. So that's one reason why we didn't get designer credits in the early days on the, uh, you know, the, the screens. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, there was a, a trade publication, Play, I think it was Playmeter, and right when we had released Caveman, which was the first game I'd worked on, mm-hmm. I'd done the video graphics for Caveman. It was a pin video hybrid. And here in this trade publication, they gave all our names. They're like interviewing everyone. And, and some people were erroneously credited, but <laughs> our names were in this industry magazine, which so so much for secrecy. Uh, perhaps perhaps they realized that Cubert was uh, something that people would want to poach, uh, poach the creators of that. <laughs> I just wondered, you know, you are, uh, you know, an artist. You are a creative, as they say. And uh, don't creatives always crave recognition, Jeff? Uh, generally speaking, uh, there are exceptions like uh, Banksy, right? <laughs> um a guy was shrouded his uh, identity mystery, or uh, who's the other one? Uh, Daft Punk. <laughs> but you, but you, I mean, was it, did you feel slightly aggrieved that people wouldn't generally be able to know that it was you that was behind this work? Oh, yeah, yeah. I would say slightly, yeah. Let's, let's pick up that role of, of artist. It was a fairly new role in the video game industry. I just wondered you know, how you were received when you joined Gottlieb? Were you were you welcomed or were people slightly suspicious of this new role coming into the kind of world of the programmer? Well, um, I joined, I was hired by a friend of mine who was art director at uh, Gottlieb and he had kind of created that position for himself. Uh, Gottlieb for many years, you know, going back into the, the 60s, the 50s, maybe even earlier, uh, used outside artists, produced their bag glasses and play fields. And there, there was a company called Ad Posters who, you know, were like, kind of like a brokerage uh, for many years for Gottlieb and for the other manufacturers in the Chicago area. And several of our artists actually had worked at Ad Posters. But anyway, my friend Richard Tracy, somehow or other, um, and I forget exactly how it came about. He ended up suggesting some pinball themes uh, to someone who was connected to the company. And they loved it. And they ended up hiring him. And then he built up an art department. Mm-hmm. Very much nep- nepotism ruled the day. You know, he hired his brother-in-law, oh. who did most of the cabinet <laughs> artwork of <laughs> our video games that you recognize. So Terry Dorzaff oh. um, did the artwork um uh, cabinet artwork on Qbert on Mad Planets. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a lot of the pinball uh, play fields. And then there was another guy I became very good friends with, David Moore. Yeah. Uh, he did a lot of the back glasses. He had worked at ad posters. So I came in as like a friend, you know, of the art director. So mm-hmm. there was a camaraderie right off there. And That's as cool. far as the video team they were all pretty new as well so uh Ah. programmers were mostly recent hires um and really with the exception of like tim skelly who was a contractor um and a fellow named chris brewer who did mock mock three yeah uh most of them had no artistic skills so they definitely needed artists to uh, visualize what they they did and do you think do you think um you know do you think they appreciated the input that you could bring because previously programmers usually just did the art themselves um do you know did they did they recognize that you were bringing something different to the table oh yeah i think so uh, like i say most of these people did not have an artistic bent they're very analytical 
um, numbers oriented, not necessarily having a possessed of a design aesthetic. Uh, Chris Brewer and Skelly, I think, were uh, outliers in that regard. I just wondered, you obviously had got a background in uh, graphic art, uh, I believe. How many of the skills that you'd built up in your previous career were directly applicable to what you were doing in those early video games? Well, the anim- my animation background, definitely there was an application there. Um, cartooning and illustration to some degree, because... Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're pushing pixels around, it's a, it's a different thing. And we didn't have the tools then mm-hmm. that we have today. I mean, I don't use like a drawing pad much here. Um, but I tend to be drawing more with a mouse or actually typically what I do these days is just draw stuff in pencil mm-hmm. and then digitize it and then manipulate it further from there. But, but, it, but, but back then, you know, I was working with 16 by 16 pixel characters so things really got boiled down to uh lowest common denominator (laughs) and so yeah i could i could flip animations on a light table to see what the motion was like but actually um drawing them freehand was i mean i would do that initially and then lay some grid paper over it and kind of trace it so there was some basic art skills involved but uh it was all really kind of a new thing in many other ways yeah. You said that the whole department, uh, the video game division at Gottlieb was was really new. Um, did you realize what you were letting yourself in for when you took the job? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I thought it was great. It was a tremendous opportunity. And I, I'm a gamer from way back. Um, I mean, as a kid, I played all kinds of games. And uh, I used to make my own game boards like when I was in <laughs> high school. Um, in college, I designed game board games and uh, played all sorts of board games, war games, and stuff like that with my friends. Mm. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Traveler, all kinds of role-playing games, and but a lot of strategy games, yeah. you know, historical simulations and so on. So uh, I loved games, and I had been playing video games, like kind of on the bar scene, you know, yeah. for, for a couple of years prior to this job opportunity. So I thought it was fantastic. Um. Jeff, let's let's move on to Cubert, which is um, one of your most uh, well-known games. Um, you are the co-creator of Cubert alongside Warren Davis. Um, Jeff, was your was your interest in the perspective mangling work of artist M. C. Escher, where Gottlieb's first hit, Coin Up, truly began? Abs- absolutely, absolutely. I'd been uh, fascinated by Escher since my first exposure, whenever that might have been, probably in college, my college years, and when you know there'd be black light posters up on the walls. <laughs> Of the uh, fraternity aisles and we're sitting around, you know, getting high and all that and, <laughs> and then contemplating, you know, uh, greater things. Um, so that was my first exposure. And then throughout the 1970s, I started exploring that sort of thing with, the, you know, triads and all that. I've got sketchbooks full of drawings. So one once I came on into the Gottlieb and had a different set of art tools, it was only a matter of time or uh, those things started cropping up. So that's when I first started, you know, messing around with it, with the art tools. Okay, okay, here it is, an easy way to make triads. And then you've got yeah. these background characters that you can, you know, put that as many of them into the grid as you uh, want to. And it's a great uh, memory saver triads like that um so one day one day warren for example walks past your desk and and he's like hey that looks good what can i do with this well yeah not so much my desk as uh con 
Yamamoto's uh-huh. had taken those cubes and he was, you know, playing around with them. And I think that's the display that Warren saw. Khan, of course, being the uh, soon-to-be creator of Mad Planets. Sure. But he had wanted to do the uh, the cube game, as he called it, um, which was just pretty much an idea or a concept. It's like it was a concept looking for a game. And that's... So you had a, di- a digital sketchbook, essentially, and you were kind of, Khan was experimenting with different shapes and, 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 and concepts, etc. Right. Well, he... Yeah, he took the those things and put them up, filled up a screen with the uh, the triads, and um, mm. it occurred to me, and I guess think I guess it occurred to Warren too. We both saw it as like a pyramid, and then once mm. you see it as a pyramid, mm. it you know it looks three dimensional. It's only a, a, a very small leap, pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to have somewhat have something hopping around on that pyramid. So. Um, what about what about Cubert himself? What about the obviously the 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 shape and the design of Cubert had to be relatively simple due to the fact that, as you said, you were working with 16 by 16 pixels for sprites, etc. Um, so you came up with the uh, the character for Cubert and also Snots and Boogers, or was it was it was it Khan or, or Well, it- no, that would have been me. Okay, so once once we had the pyramid, yeah, I wrote up a game proposal, hmm. and uh, we needed um, a protagonist, right? Hmm, sure, uh, the player character and. The snots and boogers idea where this creature is jumping around, shooting, you know, mucus from its nose <laughs> at uh, enemies, uh, to me suggested a large-nosed creature. And he had legs to jump, didn't really need arms. Um, but though actually my earliest drawing of a character was like what eventually became Slick and Sam. That was, I have like a character in a sketchbook, all drawn by hand, you know, in pencil and there is slick or is it sam i guess it's sam because there's no no sunglasses on him and he's actually colored orange in that drawing well at some later date uh it had morphed into uh the cubert character with the nose and that was very little very little change from that character to what eventually wound up on screen uh, let, let, let me tell you i'm always um it's a little bit of an aside but i'm always slightly weirded out by cubert and i'll tell you why because you just alluded to um uh, probably the reason why you 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 mentioned that you know cubert has feet to jump sure mm-hmm. he has a long nose um to fire projectiles so he's almost kind of, but he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have any arms. He just has a pair of eyes to see, a pair of feet to jump and a, and a big snout with which to shoot people. So it's almost like he's kind of evolved to be that creature. And it, and it reminds me, and you're just going to have to take my word for it here. There's a public information film that aired during the mid eighties over here called The Perfect Smoker. And it was the freakiest thing I, as a child, had ever seen. And basically... The perfect smoker was a creature, a human who had evolved uh, and his mouth was very, very small just to fit a cigarette and his nose was very, very long in order to expel the smoke. And I know that sounds completely crazy, but I just had to get get that out there. (laughs) So I I just so I can I can almost imagine. I know obviously Cubert's featured in Wreck-It Ralph as a character, but I have this weird vision of him in real life, but he still looks like that. Anyway, that aside, <laughs> I, I, just, I, I, I don't think we ever depicted Cubert as a smoker, though. No, no, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I, I mean, because I mean, there were in-house calendars and other drawings and you know i did a bunch of variants of cubert like but you never you never stuffed a cigarette down his nose I, no i never had him as a smoker and i was a smoker at the time um but yeah no never occurred to me so okay that's, that's good <laughs> that's good those um um those sketches had 
the character who you know who would become Cubert firing from the nose could that have worked because I know I know when Cubert was adapted to a like a kids TV show they had him firing firing balls or projectiles from his nose did you did you ever have a build of the game when he was shooting things no no okay Warren had uh, you know like I said he had seen the uh, the triads and he had gone with the pyramid and then he made it a experiment and programming exercise of which way will the ball go right or left when it ah uh, sure know. yeah yeah so you know on and off kind of programming thing going on and mm. he agreed there need to be someone jumping around but he did not take to the game proposal that i had put out there and never considered uh having him shoot so really really cubert's snout was a, was effectively redundant poor fella yes it's a, it was a vestigial organ <laughs> I like it. Because um. <laughs> it, it, it originally, it, I think the only function it would serve in the game is give you an indication which way he's facing. Okay, sure. No, absolutely. Um, uh, the other characters you created, uh, Coily um, and the others, how, how close were your initial ideas um, to how they actually ended up looking in the, in the final game? Um, all of them pretty much, I would say, or I would say none of them really changed much from the initial design. War- Warren, Warren, Warren was just content to take whatever I gave him. Jeff, can it be frustrating when when someone else is essentially interpreting your ideas rather than you kind of directly controlling the process? Or did you was that partnership wholly fluid at the time? Well, it could be frustrating but there was i'm certainly not a programmer so that was the only way of course it it would get done so yeah and 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 warren did a great job you know he did i'm sure his vision of the game and where it went was probably a a better game than what my vision would have been if i had had all the say so okay and he i think he describes himself sometimes as kind of a clearinghouse because you know we had an open shop an open office there people wandered by and offered opinions criticism suggestions and uh warren would take some if he liked them he'd implement them if he thought it would work or be worth you know he'd give it a try mm-hmm. and if he didn't uh, it didn't go any further so but he was open to uh anything that would improve the game mm, the great filter yes <laughs> not 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 the one that's going to end all human life on earth yeah. um jeff, jeff when when cuba became such a huge hit for gottlieb um, you know, it transcended its video game origins, really. Um, you know, were you taking friends and family to arcades first and foremost saying, I did that, that's my game? I mean, I definitely took my mother and her husband to, to a bowling alley where the game was on test. And it's before it was even called Cubert's when it had the swear marquee on. Uh-huh. And because I, I have a, a journal that I kept, I kept throughout the 70s, well, the late 70s, I kept these journals and they were not very good journals because it's very superficial, but um, that was one of the few, my journals tend to be just like social calendars. Okay. Um, but, the, but I know that one is in there going to that, or, uh, that bowling alley. Awesome. You know what? Tell it, tell us about that swear marquee because did, did nobody think that was a really, really silly idea for a, for a video game title? You know, obviously nobody's going to be able to know what it's called. Well, well you hit, hit the nail on the head. That's yeah. <laughs> that was the objection right there. And our boss, Howie Rubin, he wanted to go with that. Uh, and I'm it's the nice one. and obtuse. Right. I, 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 I'm a, I'm a, I like it. Yeah. I'm the one who suggested it. He thought it was a good idea. Uh-huh. Uh, but other people were like, yeah, but how, how, are, we, how are people going to say the name when they want to order the 
the machine. So that yeah. got shot down. There, but for test, you know, when machines got on test, you could get away with anything because no one was taking orders at that point. They were just looking to see how a machine was collecting. How many quarters was it bringing in? It certainly, it certainly attracts you to the machine. I would imagine. I mean, I, I, I had a Qbert at one point. And I did have a swear marquee on there, and obviously the the name Qbert is on the um on the front of the control panel anyway. But it's right. cer- certainly something to attract the player. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not exactly forbidden fruit, but it's it's not what you would expect. It's I guess adds an element. Of- or an air of mystery about it, and it probably uh, abridges translations uh, or you know language barriers. Jeff, we we mentioned earlier that you weren't credited on the title screen of the original Cubert, but your name did appear on the upgrade, faster, harder, more challenging Cubert. Uh, I just wondered why why the change. And- and also, and also, Cubert's uh, cubes. Yes. So, were they, um, was management bowing to pressure from from you creative types? Yeah, I think I think they were. And you didn't start getting phone calls. You said they were so worried about you getting poached. As soon as people knew it was you, <laughs> was the phone ringing off the hook? Yeah. No. No. That. No. 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 Not. Not at all. <laughs> Um, I want to ask a bit more about uh, faster, harder, more challenging Cubit or FHMC Cubit for for short, because I know it didn't actually get an official release, but it has surfaced more recently, so people can play it on MAME, is that you created a female companion for Cubit called Cubertha. And uh, I just wondered, was that a kind of Miss Pac-Man thing where you were trying to create a whole family uh, to, uh, to live in these games? Yeah, I don't. I think Cubertha was actually my creation. I mentioned earlier um, Chris Brewer, who was a hardware guy, software guy, also pretty fine artist. And Chris had, among other things, he made a Cubert coloring book. He was fascinated by Cubert. And uh, so he was having a lot of fun. He made this coloring book. He made a calendar. And I think he may have actually originated Cubertha. And I have in one of my sketchbooks a drawing of a whole slew of female characters. And Cubertha is among them, but I don't think I actually originated her. I did a Carmen Miranda figure i don't know if you, are you familiar with her, her yes with the head yes okay on the head. yes yeah, yeah. carmen of course with a q um so there's that there's q bet you know kind of a bobby socks or uh there's you know female cubers with like ponytails and so you, uh, you saw the potential there, there, there was there was what there was one modeled after uh jane byrne who was the mayor of first female mayor of Chicago. Oh, I believe she was mayor at the time. So there's one that kind of has her hairstyle, and um, yeah, Q Burn. Then she was called. Um, you so were really like, running with this character. Oh my god! No, there was a whole page because it was like a brainstorming thing. Of course, uh, faster, harder, more challenging Cubit didn't, but Cubit's cubes did come out, and that was something that you worked on with Chris Brewer. Um, it's an interesting game, quite. I'd say a little bit abstract. Do you think possibly too abstract for a mainstream audience? Uh, well, first, Chris didn't work on that game. It was programmed and conceived by Neil Bernstein. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, you know, and I hadn't seen that game. Is pretty much all Neil's creation. Um, it was his first game effort for us, and he did this tic tac toe thing. And I had kind of forgotten how the game was played until I saw it a few years ago at the Galloping Ghost Arcade. Uh, Doc Mac there had gotten mm-hmm. a hold of a copy and 
uh, restored it, put it up there. And it, so it was the first time in like over 30 years that I would played that thing. And it's really different and a challenge. I like it a lot. The tic-tac-toe thing. I don't know if there was many video games that went with that concept. Mm. But it certainly worked well, I think, for Cubert as a, a sequel of sorts. Mm. Um, and it's uh, very challenging. I can't actually get that far on it. I get about the... Yes, it's, I, I've played it on the original cabinet. And it is hard to get your head, uh, for, your head around. Yeah, fourth or fifth screen and... Uh, <laughs> That bout does me in. Of course, I'm not really that good at many of these games. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose the, uh, just, I suppose the thing with Cubert is that it has had this kind of afterlife from those early titles that introduced mm-hmm. him to uh, to the world. And I just wondered, you know, when you see him on T-shirts or you know, on cuddly toys, or even you know, in the last few years on the big screen in films like Wreck It Ralph and pixels i just wondered how you felt do you do you look and think my boy done good yeah i th- i think we all feel that way you know uh warren does mm. uh david thiel who did you know the sounds and which added so much to the character of a mm-hmm. of a little sprite that's hopping around on a screen yeah. and you get the sounds really do so much for that game yeah. um and, and was a one of the best jokes in in uh, wreck it ralph when the uh Felix is talking to Cubert and he says he can speak Cubertese, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was, that was splendid. So I, I, I think we all get a charge out of that. Uh, Jeff, you, you worked with the late Khan Yabamoto. Uh, you mentioned Khan early at the top of the interview um, on the game Mad Planet, which is one of our favorite titles, certainly. Um, and certainly an Overlook classic, although it's, um, it's garnered much appreciation in, in, in recent years. Um, can you can you speak to that, Jeff? What are what are your abiding memories of Khan? Um, and also, really, when did you learn of his passing? Uh, well, to address the latter, um, we pretty much knew about it when it happened. Yeah, he was in very poor health. Right. Um, I when I had when I first got into this retro gamer scene a few years back you know i was introduced to it by some retro gamers i had no idea that uh, it was a thing that it was a thing right yeah, yeah. and uh, but i've remained in contact with many of my colleagues from those days and i was invited up to uh the midwest gaming classic in milwaukee mm. and so i tried to you know, get some reinforcements. And Khan was someone who I'd, I'd remained in touch with. Mm. In fact, I'd done, I'd done a little freelance work for him just a few years, you know, before that uh, that time. Yeah. Um, and he was reluctant to go. He didn't He didn't want to go. Um, okay. His, he, Khan was a very heavy smoker and it had really impacted his health. Mm. And he, when Terry Minnick and I were going around re- interviewing my colleagues for the memoir of it, that I wrote, uh, we videotaped most of those sessions, but Khan did not want to be on camera because he was self-conscious. He was using the oxygen tank and all that. Right. Okay. And it was difficult. He had mobility issues because of that. However, maybe the second or third time went up to MGC, Khan had finally consented to go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he gave a talk, he took questions and I could see he was really into it. He, uh, he took a lot of pride in his work, hmm. um, very intense work ethic uh, he had. Um, after the video game days, he had gone into partnership with Jun Yum, who was, had been our uh, 
lead hardware designer. And they had produced another number of products. And I had worked on some stuff with them, and so had Warren. But I think he took a lot of pride in Mad Planets. Uh, Rightly so. Yeah, it was, uh, he can. He conceived, or he had a conception of it. I have a write-up that he made, uh, and I don't know that it's ever been published. The thing he did with in the background, replacing background sprites to give you the illusion that you're flying through space, right? Mm. With these stars shooting out. That was all done in background. Um, and he had he worked out some algorithm to pull that all off. And uh, so he was very proud of that, very proud of the programming that he put into that game. And I think he was really... Um, touch that there was a, a book with like 10,000 video games you must play before you die. I don't know if you've ever seen that volume. I found an issue of it up in Canada somewhere. And two Gottlieb games were in it. One was Cubert, the other was Mad Planet. So that's kind of a testament to how great that game is. And I know there are some people who just love that game. And I didn't realize I didn't realize you were a fan. Yeah, it's a great game. It's, it's I mean, uh, you know, you, you when you talk classic video game shooters, you know, some people, most people think of Space Invaders. And then if you have a little arcade knowledge, you'll go to Defender. But for my money, Mad Planets is um, is Defender's equal in many ways, although a very different game. Mm-hmm. Um, just as good value as, as Defender and just as addictive and just as, you know, just one more go. Let me <laughs> let me get let me get let me get the highest score I can. The an, an amazing an amazing audio um amazing audio music is by David yeah, David Thiel again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But only but you know it it only really met with modest success and and I believe and I'm going by uh, Tony's um website the arcade blogger which you know I think only 1,400 cabinets were built which I know is not i mean you know you compare that to the, your your miss pac-mans and your pac-mans mm-hmm. and, it's, and, and oh, defenders yeah. it's, it's kind of nothing so it's right. in relative terms it's quite modest but you, you must be i mean you've spoken that can't you know you, you've said that khan himself was um uh very happy to see that his game was still appreciated but you know did do you think he just thought these things were lost to time i suppose like you you guys probably did yeah i think so he had he had a a machine that he had kept. Mm. Um, it was at the time that uh, Terry and I interviewed him. We went on look at it. It was not functional. Uh, needed a little work. And actually, Terry, who subsequently opened up an arcade, which unfortunately now is during the pandemic has closed. Yeah. Uh, he ended up buying the machine from uh, from Khan and restoring it and putting it in his arcade. And he had it, you know, signed by Khan and by myself. Um, now. This is maybe a little bit off subject, but Khan, there were a bunch of posters, promotional posters for uh, Mad Planets. And I had a couple of them, but it turns out Khan had a whole bag full of them. Right. <laughs> they were just like rolled up randomly and stuck in a bag somewhere. They'd been sitting in his basement for 30 years. So he brought those up to Milwaukee and was signing them. So I got a few more copies of that thing signed by Khan. So that's kind of a collector's item. Jeff, were you given? I mean, Mad Planets was very much Khan's game, mm-hmm. but w- but were you given a free hand um, with the design work or and, and the character creation, or did, Khan, did well? Pretty much, it's like you know, I I, I need I need planets. Yeah, they'd get angry, and we need um, a spaceship, and then what else is there? There's uh, an astronaut that floats around, and yeah, 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 you know, character set stuff like that. Now, when I look at my grid paper drawings hmm. for the planets of mad planets ah, you go they're on. 
there are they have faces right they have faces and uh-huh. stuff. That, did, yeah. that didn't really enter into the game because the game tends to be more realistic looking planets so so i'm not sure i'm not sure why that didn't happen at the at this remove i, I can't say like oh it would have been too intensive because i was limited i had 256 foreground sprites in any yep. given game i had 128 background sprites now later on uh sam russo who did the three stooges game yeah he i think taking the same board or maybe another iteration of that board was able to pack in a lot more sprites by some software tricks but i don't think that was the case with mad planets so we must have been limited it's like oh we can't afford to do all this animation on on these faces so just make it a planet and the biggest trick i remember is the uh the little moons that circle the planets, they cast shadows and stuff like that. And I was so, going to ask you about that. Yeah. So yeah. that, that was a cool thing. <laughs> was that, is that level of detail really necessary, Jeff? Um, well, yeah, I think so. It's a bit of a leading question. Sorry. No, it's a, it sounds like, some... I mean, it's something that's easy enough to do. Right. I mean, at least, at least for me, for my, I mean, I'm sure Khan did it some kind of uh, software trick, you know, with the, well, he probably just had to take a, uh, a sprite that was uh, ball shaped and black and have it travel at a certain angle to the other one. Right. Okay. You know, over, over the surface. So, well, for its time, it's certainly a very striking game. And that's a large part of that is obviously down to yourself. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I know it got some reviews back in the day, the popular video game magazines where they really love the graphics. They really loved the sounds. I mean, they were went ape around about the sounds. They really go on and on about that. Uh, so that's really a tribute to David Thiel. Yeah, well, the whole pa- the whole package is something else. It truly is. Yeah. I, I might mention, um, I have two rarities in my possession still for that game. I have a, go on. I have a control panel that was like an early prototype that's different oh. from the one that's on the machine. Very interesting. It's, I mean, it was completely printed up. It's not my work. It was the, uh, although I might've done some work on it actually, cause there are some elements on it that look like my style, but, uh, it's definitely not the layout that exists on the game as it was manufactured. You know, the uh, joystick and the uh, dials are in different positions. And so I don't know if that's how it originally went out on test, but you know, Richard had this thing made up cause they wanted all the test games to look like the real thing. So they, right, sure. they pulled out all the stops. The other thing I have, and I just saw it the other day is uh, the original model I made of the spaceship. Oh, great. It's, it's simple. It's just a simple you know, eight pieces of cardboard glued together. And then, uh, you know, it's white. I just with India ink did, you know, the details on it and it's on a stick. And that's how. So did. did so, so what I did was position it and take uh, Polaroid photographs okay. of the ship. And I still have those Polaroids as well. And so I would take those pictures and then use them as a trace over on a light table mm. to get the uh, positions of the ship that wound up being the uh sprites well that was your that's your animation background coming in there jeff uh surely. well right 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 that's but that's the technique i had for something like that and it lends it a degree of realism um jeff you know we, we, we've talked about khan and mad planets you were also at gottlieb at the same time as 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 tim skelly who sadly passed away last year and who, you know, again, you mentioned at the top of the interview. What are your memories of Tim, Jeff? Did you work with him at all? Um, no. I mean, right. we were in the same building. <laughs> Fiercely but, but, independent, but, but, but right? Tim, but Tim, Tim, he was, he did everything pretty much except the audio. 
or of course he didn't design the hardware either, but right. he did the programming, he did the game design, he did all his art, you know, so he didn't need someone like me. Hmm. Um, he Reactor was the only game that he did for us out of his contract that got produced, but he fulfilled his end of the contract and produced all the games. They were just never released. And he did the art on all of them and the art is you know, spectacular on all of them. Mm. Um, so he was a presence. He was like the star person. I mean, he had a reputation. And of course, prior to me working there, I would never heard of Tim Skelly. But as soon as I got there, I was like, you know, he's not an employee like the rest of us. He gets yeah, credit sure. on the games for one thing. It was in his contract. Oh, um, okay. Which would, which, okay, immediately would have... Um... Uh, be different yeah right and i was impressed when i realized when i heard about the games that he'd done that i had actually played one of his games frequently when i was my previous job i worked at a, a community college and there was a golf driving range across the street and they had like a, a little clubhouse building with a handful of arcade games and that's one of the first places i met these games and one of them was tim skelly's armor attack right and i played that many a times and then here a few months later yeah i'm working in the vicinity of this dude so uh but he was he had real style uh really really smart guy hmm. um very clever dressed elegantly hmm. I have to say, I have to say that both Tim and Khan are two people who we obviously, sadly, will will never get the opportunity to talk to for the podcast. And and as we, what what the Ted Dabney experience is all about is speaking to speaking to those people who you know, like not not only the leading lights, but the unsung heroes and the you know the supporting cast. And obviously, Tim and Tim and Khan are certainly not yeah, the supporting yeah. cast. Yeah. But, well, they know, would have, into they, that. they would have been very good mm. uh, interviewees. For sure. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, Tim had real style and wit um, and all kinds of stories to tell. He would have been a great one to talk to. Uh, sadly, he, uh, in his later years, was afflicted by a condition where he could not speak. Um, he could not communicate. Yeah. He could not read or write. It was like this. Uh, it was it was a tr real tragedy um, that this brilliant person was like locked in their body. Um and Khan would have had a lot to say. Now, there are archives of uh, Khan talking. You know, like I say, I interviewed him yeah. for the game. So he goes on quite at length about a lot of technical subjects, too. And when he did come to MGC, uh, that session was recorded as well. Where can, our, where can our listeners, Jeff, find these archives? Do you recall any links in particular? I, uh, I have the... My interview with him. Yeah. Um, Is there anything on YouTube or, or, or elsewhere? Uh, not that I know of. I But the MGC appearance may be on YouTube. I, I don't know. And I'm not sure who recorded that. Sure. Um, so you might need to talk to uh, uh, the guys that run that. Or it's possible Terry recorded that as well. Do you, do you know Terry Minnick? No, no. You're mentioning, you're dropping a lot of names here, which right. I'm not familiar with, which is not For, a bad thing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, he's the guy, like I said, got me into this retro scene. And ah, um, okay. I could put you in touch with Terry. I don't like the tag retro gaming, actually, yeah, although the magazine okay. itself is, is known as retro game. I prefer classic gaming okay, because these, classic these games are timeless, right? Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> Genuinely, it sounds okay. like I'm blowing smoke, but, um, you know, you uh, Donkey Kong, Defender, Mad Planets, Q-Bert, yeah, they're all, okay. they all stand the test of time and they still... They still stand up today that's that's the beauty uh, of these things you know yeah okay well i didn't mean anything pejorative about it it's just, no god yeah. no i'm not i'm just i'm just kind of i'm waxing i'm, I'm not pulling you okay. up on anything i'm just i just it just came into my head um jeff i'm gonna hand you over to paul actually who's gonna talk to you about um krull and three stooges i believe okay 
Jeff, uh, during your career, you worked on uh, a couple of film tie-ins. So I'm going to start with Krull. Now, Krull, the video game, was supposed to be released at the same time as the film. So I just wondered how that worked. I mean, were you sent any assets of the uh, of the film while it was being made to, to base your game graphics on? Well, yeah, they must have sent me pictures. I don't have any of those pictures, but uh, I had to have something to work with. Um, now, Matt Householder, who is... Still alive and kicking, lives out in San Francisco, was the lead programmer on that. Mm-hmm. His uh, partner on that was uh, Chris Krubel, who is is deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he has a better memory of what kind of source material they gave us. I know in another instance, we were supposed to, there was another Columbia film, Blue Thunder. They wanted to do a tie-in with that. And they flew Tom Allen, Elsie, and I to New York to see the film in a screening room. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if... Matt and Chris got that opportunity with Kroll. Uh, you'd have to ask Matt. For, for your role on that game, I mean, for the first time, you're sort of animating more realistic um, objects, you know, human characters, opposed to the more sort of abstract stuff you'd done before. Did, did you enjoy that challenge? Well, it was kind of the second one because the, super, the, super, the superhero game I did with, um, with Tom, which never really got released, was also more or less realistic figures. Mm. Uh, yeah, I did enjoy it, but I can't say I'm really all that pleased with what I produced for it. I don't think it's my best work. Well, let's let's move on to we'll move on to another one. With the, uh, I think the Three Stooges was actually not only your graphic work, but you were quite instrumental in getting that idea of a game based on the Three Stooges um, to become reality. So, um, were you were you a big fan of the Stooges growing up? Oh yes, as as an American boy. Okay, right. Very good. You know, they 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 were on they were on television every day. You know, after school. So, did you end up sort of pitching that idea? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, within days, I think of arriving there at Godley, I was <laughs> thinking, you know, we're owned by Columbia Pictures. Columbia did the Stooges. We need to do a Three Stooges game. You know, it's just so rife with possibility. It should be a big hit. Well, things weren't quite that simple as I can imagine. Um, but eventually it did happen. So, um, yeah. And again, that's a game I hadn't seen for many years uh, until it came to the Galloping Ghost. And um, it was a pleasure to see it again. It was, it was a lot of fun working on that one, let me tell you. Yeah. I mean, pie, pie throwing is pretty fundamental to that game and indeed any Three Stooges films. Please tell me you recreated epic food fights in the Gottlieb canteen. Uh, no, but in the process of making the sound effects, um, Sam Russo, lead programmer, and Tom Malinowski, who assisted him, actually... <laughs> set up recording and went out to the warehouse and were throwing like, if not pies, some kind of globby things against the wall to get the audio effects. So, okay. That was an equivalent. <laughs> Perhaps that's a, a good way to, to bring us on to the fact that it sounds like quite a fun atmosphere there at Gottlieb, or it was actually renamed Milestar around this time as well. So I just wondered, um, you know, if you have to characterize the atmosphere when you were working there, was it like a frat house, uh, a family, or, or just, a, just a place of work? Well, it was not quite like a frat house. I actually lived in a frat house. Um, it was close to that. It was sort of like family. In a way, I think <laughs> Howie Rubin mm-hmm. and Ron Waxman had this avuncular 
um, aspect to their personalities that you can't you felt close to them that way um, they were the managers there is that right yes right right uh, ron was the head of engineering and howie was the uh vice president of the division and uh they uh really set off a good vibe in that place and it was i gotta say one of the best places i ever worked in in that sense um and it was more than just a place to work and i and i think most of us appreciated that Jeff, um, so this was around, I think, probably around 1984. Did did you think it was it was all pretty much over, and did you did you have concerns about where you were going to go after after this time? Uh, I did not think it was a fad. I, you know, home games were home consoles were coming out. Yes, it's obvious this was not going to go away. Okay, sure. Uh, I did have concerns of where I would go. I was. I had had a, I mean, previous to that, I had a, a job at a community college running a graphics department. Yeah. But prior to that, I'd been a freelance artist. So I kind of continued in that vein as a freelance artist. For MacroMind, right? Uh, I did some stuff for MacroMind and, uh, you know, American Medical Association and, okay. you know, il- newspaper illustrations and um, and more video games. Yeah, in the late 80s, you, you, you do return to coin Yeah, I... I I did some coin, uh, some coin op here and there, and um, some cartridges. Uh, but I also had married, was married, and had kids, and it was, it was a situation where uh, my wife had a pretty good job full time, mm-hmm. so I kind of stayed at home, looked after the kids, and um, mm-hmm. that's how it went for you know a number of years, and I gradually kind of got out of the video game thing. You know, I had some bad experiences with some people, and it kind of soured me. Kind of soured me on you know pursuing that and uh, okay so yeah I was completely out of it mm. by uh, you know the mid nineties okay can I can I walk you back just a little bit just sure. to to working with Warren for example on on Exterminator um, which is a very unique game and you know going going back into coin op as you did in the late eighties presumably things had changed a lot obviously in terms of technology and the and the coin op industry as a whole um, and Exterminator was the first game to be fully created using digitized graphics so. How did you go about capturing all that footage of the, you know, the bugs and the other nasties that infest the house? I was provided with a high quality camera, which could only capture directly to a board, though. And um, so some of it was captured that way. We were using a target board, gave us a lot more colors than I had experienced before. So that was great. Mm -hmm. I was also able to, as a young father, I had a... um, a camcorder, and uh, I was able to capture that video and transfer those clips into the target board. So there's like stuff with like little roly polies and bugs running around. That's some of that's actually from live video. And I also took still shots then for like the rooms of the houses that you go through. They were the interiors of my house and Warren's house, a friend's attic, stuff like that. And uh, this is a real kick to see that game and then see these backgrounds because I no longer live in that house or have access to those other buildings. So it's it's like looking at a photograph album for me. And, and, and even if you did, obviously, they would they would not look the same um did did you did you do the mad planets thing you know you said you you made a little model of the mad planet spaceship did you do the same thing with any of the characters from exterminator oh absolutely cool and okay. um, uh the wasp uh and there were several creatures they made out of wire and duct tape and clay and stuff and i just found some of those last spring oh excellent i okay. was i was cleaning out my garage and i opened up these drawers and i found two boxes 
full of props from Exterminator, including some this duct tape monster. So I thought, wow. I like I, I like the fact that you found them in what would undoubtedly be a bug infested garage anyway. Well, it, what, one of them was like chewed up by mice and stuff, you know. Right. So, well, yeah, 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 yeah. It was perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> perfect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, the, but the game wasn't Exterminator wasn't a success though, Jeff. No, not really, not at relatively all. speaking. I mean, we 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 surprised given its slightly offbeat theme, or do you think that really was the reason? I don't. I don't know, Richie. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. You know, I didn't really have my finger on the pulse of the industry at that point. You know, it got sure. some great reviews, particularly in some British publications, and they were just nuts over this game. And yeah. uh, they made the you know they're talking about how weird and off the wall it was, and you know most of that's due to Warren's vision, because um, it was pretty much his baby. But they said either someone's going to become very rich or lose their shirts. And uh, they, right. they ended up losing their shirts, unfortunately. It's funny you should mention that I have vague a vague recollection. It may well have, it may well not actually be true, but I have a vague recollection of in Zap 64 magazine, which was a Commodore 64 magazine. But what they did have was a section where they went to their local arcades. And I seem to remember, uh, I think Julian Rignall, um, talking about exterminator, but I may, I may, it may be a replaced memory. I'm not quite sure. Well, there's two reviews I have copies of, and I think they're both from British magazine. Interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. We like weird over here. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for sharing all those uh, tales uh, of your time in uh, in the coin op business. But of course, you are kind of used to reminiscing because you you wrote a book. Uh, a few years back called Cubert and We, all about your, your time in the industry. First of all, I was just intrigued with the title that it's Cubert and, and We. So were you very keen to reflect the kind of collective spirit um, of the industry back then? Yeah, I thought the story was best told uh, by bringing in my colleagues on this. And, and, it, and all these games were team efforts anyway, you know. None of them were done in isolation. And I was well-placed to do that because I kept in touch with many of them mm-hmm. over the years. And, uh, you know, not that we got together necessarily because a lot of people had scattered. I stayed in the Chicago area and a lot of other folks had moved on. But a lot of them were very cooperative. You know, Warren in particular gave me a huge chunk of stuff. Matt Householder mm-hmm. sent me a lot of information. And um, I you know, wanted to credit everyone where credit was due. I wonder what the process of writing a book about your time back then, particularly because it involved talking to old colleagues, would you say it was cathartic, celebratory? I know. I've always been interested in history. I, and I always wanted to write a book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> I, I, so here, here was an opportunity. I had actually written a, another history book, a historical biography a few years before that of an American Revolutionary War hero. Okay. And uh, I can't, don't say I'm a good writer. <laughs> But um, you can hold your own. (laughs) I I muddled my way through it and I put together, I think, a credible thing. So to do this was much easier because it was my own story. So even though I'm bringing everyone else in, I'm primarily telling it from my point of view. So the first section of the book talks about, in brief, my artistic and game development prior to working at Gottlieb. And then the bulk of the book is the games. And I pretty much go chronologically uh, with the game. And that's where I bring in everyone to talk about, you know, their contributions, their memories, and so on. And then I followed up with what became the people afterwards. Because a lot of these folks, you know, stayed in the industry. I mean, David Thiel to this day is doing pinball sounds. 
And Warren is doing, he went on to acting, but that's his passion. Uh, But he still is doing some sort of gamey thing. He's like doing ports something like that yeah well they do say they do say right about what you know and you you certainly know an incredibly large amount about that really groundbreaking time um jeff thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your amazing stories cheers okay cheers good talking to you richie it was nice seeing you down in florida yeah hopefully we can see you again at free play florida when we can when uh, i think it's going ahead this year but even probably more likely the following year but thank you thank you so much it's been great thank you oh you're welcome you're welcome my pleasure guys you've been listening to the ted dabney experience podcast with me richard may retro gamer magazine's paul drury and arcade blogger tony temple the show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by ghost of wood additional technical support by jason arbor The game itself is is extremely sought after these mm. days by collectors. It's uh, it's, it's a be- it's a beautiful looking machine, and uh, I, I myself brought one over a, a few years ago, which I've since sold on. Um, the game itself, let's go back. The game ran on a on a new board at the time, which I believe allowed a lot more moving objects. Um, did this give you a lot of freedom when it came to designing the graphics? Well, it was as far as I know, Richie. It was it was the same board that I used on Qbert oh. and on uh, and on uh, the superhero game that Tom Malinowski had programmed that I'm go- I'm going to have a word with our producer. I don't think that's right. <laughs> Let, let's ha- let's hash I this out. Come on. We, we 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 went we uh, well, you told me that it was a new board. We, yeah. we we went through a couple boards. But you know, I think it's got to be the same board that they used in Reactor and Qbert cuz all those games were kind of done at the same time. All right, well Let's not have a fight on air. But I, I'm sure. No, this is where. No, it's interesting. This, I'm sure, some of our listeners will probably probably have something to chip in. I'm going to use the magic of Google. Mm-hmm.